All right, welcome to a Chicago Musky Expo edition of the Backlash Podcast. I have my co-host, Brad Hoppy, Musky Mayhem Tackle, and we also have four guides. Typically during these podcasts, we have other guides show up as we move along. I will quickly let everybody introduce themselves, but first I want to say, if you're listening and you're looking for the best in musky gear, make sure you check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com and also support MuskyMayhemTackle.com. Brad, how's day one at the show treating you? It's been good, Jeff. We've had a lot of fun. Um, a lot of people came through the booth today. Got to visit with some people that I don't normally see, but maybe once a year at these shows. Had a good time. Absolutely. Been a great time here and day one at the Muskie Expo. But let's go through our guide panel first, and I think we lost a guide. All right. That's typical. All right. I'm going to go to my left. Steve. I am on the left. I'm Steve Jensen, Fish Hunts Guide Service. I've been guiding the Hayward area of northwest Wisconsin, entering year 24 somehow. So I've been at it for a while. And uh, moving on, we got a couple other great guides here. All right, to the left of Steve, I'm Chris Willen. I do Chris Willen's guide service. I guide in northern Wisconsin and in the south in the wintertime, and we're coming into our 14th season. Uh, also, kind of surprising, can't believe I made it that long. Hey, I'm Colin Schlicht, Hardcore Hook and Guide Service. I spend most of my time on Pewaukee, Waukesha County, and uh, the Green Lakes area. Uh, Austin Wiggerman, Austin Wiggerman's guide service. I uh, bounce around quite often, but I'm most uh, centrally located, northern Illinois, southern Wisconsin, uh, Fox Chain, Geneva, and then midsummer bouncing around the western Minnesota, uh, north central Minnesota area. All right, so earlier in the day, I thought we were going to have a little bit of a crowd. Turns out we don't have a crowd. They didn't want to stick around this long. So we're going to have to come up with some questions on our own. But we did have somebody submit a question to us. They want to talk about fishing deep. How deep is too deep in the new reality of muskies with live scope? Obviously, Brad, you've talked about it on the podcast before. It is a concern to be fishing these muskies too deep, especially when it comes to release. So we're going to get some thoughts on all of our guide panels here on how deep is too deep. So, Brad, I don't know. You want to start it off? Yeah, you know, you start talking about too deep. There's a bunch of different factors, and it just doesn't have to only do with live scope. So I learned many years ago, probably 20 years ago, doing the open water trolling side of things. If you started putting your baits down too deep, once you had a thermocline, these fish would be bloated. And so we backed off. Once that thermocline started developing, I totally quit doing the open water trolling. So that was one factor. Um, now, with LiveScope and all the different things I've said it before in the podcast, it comes with responsibility. You have to be aware of what's too deep. And I guess that's the real topic here. I don't know. There's, it's kind of a crazy situation. I, I don't know that there's a definite answer, and I think every body of water has maybe some different potential depths. But as a general rule, I look at 10 to 12 feet. That's what I'm going to start with. We'll let these guys kind of handle this, this first question, and we'll bounce around here a little bit, hopefully get some good answers. All right. Well, that is a, that's a handful. Uh, that's certainly an issue, uh, something a lot of guys have been talking about. This is Steve Jensen talking. Um, how deep is too deep? Uh, like Brad said, it's a relative term. Kind of depends on where you're fishing. Um, I also think it matters on how fast you bring that fish up. Uh, or how fast that fist uh, rises up through the water column. Uh, like Brad said, uh, the only time I've experienced barotrauma issues was trolling with fish over open water, uh, especially when they come to the surface very quickly. Um, I, in my own personal fishing, very rarely fish under 20 feet. 
Um, I think it's a little bit deeper than what Brad was saying, but I think for the most part the muskies can handle it unless they're coming up very, very quickly. Um, as most people know, if you catch crappies out of water deeper than 20 or 25 feet, oftentimes they have a problem with barotrauma, same with perch, same with walleye. Um, I do think the muskies respond similar, um, but again, I think if the fish has fought for a long time in a little bit deeper water and not brought to the surface immediately, um, you can relieve those pressures a little bit. Uh, but it's definitely a concern. If you're bringing fish up from deep water very quickly, um, you're going to run into problems. It's certainly a, an issue. And uh, as muskie anglers, we all want to be 100% catch and release for the most part. Everybody hates it when one doesn't make it. Um, so in order to avoid that, uh, we definitely try not to target them any deeper than 20 feet. Exception would be sucker fishing very late in the fall, which I do. And sometimes I'll run depths of 25 to 30 feet but we're fighting those fish up very, very slowly. So they're not coming to the surface immediately, and generally we don't see any problems with barrel trauma whatsoever. Uh, this is Chris Willen. <clears throat> I don't really have a lot to add to this. Uh, I primarily fish shallow rivers and really small bodies of water when we're doing lake stuff, so um, I don't encounter a ton of deep water fishing. Um, everything these guys are saying definitely rings true and uh, things to look out for, but I'm going to respectfully bow out of this question. This is Colin with Hardcore Hook and Guide Service. Uh, you know, a lot of good points were made. Uh, the only thing I have to add to that is if you are pulling fish, you know, out of that deeper water, I know I'm doing a lot of nitro on at times, and you have to remember when you are releasing those fish that you do have less oxygen in that, that top portion of the water column when that sun isn't shining there anymore so it is important to to release that fish and, and take care of it uh, that's something Austin. all right austin um again i uh, don't want to reiterate everything same but i think uh it's it's the question is really the same as just a conservation question really and i think it's it goes along the lines of the same question of how how hot is too hot um I, I don't have a specific depth to really give an answer to. I don't have a specific temperature to stop musky fishing, but I know where I'm specifically located and done a majority of my fishing every year, the water temps get to 80 and we shut things down. So at the end of the day, uh, there is some science out there and some, some depths and numbers you know, that, that people talk about. Um, but on the safe side of things, as all of us guides, as all of us musky fishermen really need to do is, is lean on the side of caution just if you think it's too deep if you even question it don't do it if you think the water's too warm don't do it we uh we need to respect our resources keep them as healthy and uh happy as we can for as long as we can so we got shows like this and guides like this and happy pictures we get to see for all of our customers for hopefully a long time so i think you know steve kind of touched on this as well i think that there's uh there's some other factors to this too, not only the oxygen side, but the fatigue side that you kind of touched on, Steve. You know, if you're wearing out this fish, you mishandle it potentially in the boat. There's so many different factors. You can't just say the depth is the key. So definitely something to be concerned about as everybody has already said, but I think uh, at the end of the day, it's about fatigue, abuse to the fish, and you gotta, you gotta watch yourself in that side of it too. All right, so let's talk a little bit about gear. I don't know. We don't have any other questions yet. Did you have any questions you want to ask us? I'll, I'll, let me think of it for a minute. 
Okay, we'll give you we'll give you a shot. All right, so we do have a few people that showed up now. Let's talk about gear because everybody wants to talk about gear and baits, and every season is different. Let's go down the down the line and say like what was probably maybe the most influential or hottest bait that you guys had seen for the last the the season we just got done with. Which one put the most fish in the net? Maybe what new bait did you guys play with that you thought was pretty cool? Something like that. Let's talk about gear for a minute. Hey, it's Steve Jensen here again. Uh, Gear-wise, lure-wise, it was an interesting year in that uh, we had more figure-eight activity um, in my boat than I've seen in many, many years. Uh, I can't exactly put my finger on why that happened. Uh, typically in my area of Hayward, we don't have a ton of figure-eight action. Uh, the fish generally show and eat or don't show at all. Uh, but this year we had tons of encounters in the figure-eight. Um, numerous large fish, especially in the early season through the late, mid to late June. Uh, we had a really good peak, which I felt was a little bit earlier than normal, but we had some nice warm weather, and uh, we had some big girls that were wanting to chase and wanting to eat at our feet. Um, and that kind of stuck true through most of the season, even through the early fall. Um, a lot of figure eight bites. Um, again, all the way to late fall, we were still getting figure eight bites on swimming dogs. Um, so we had a lot more boat side action. I can't tell you exactly why. Uh, but I can tell you that that's what happened this year. Um, I also caught a lot more fish on blades than I typically do. I'm known as a rubber guy. I love throwing rubber, and, and we do. Um, but this year they were wanting our blades on uh, most lakes I was fishing through a good portion of the season. Uh, not big blades. I throw a lot of little stuff, and I work it fast. Um, I think a lot of times speed is a trigger, and I try to use that to my advantage as often as I can. Uh, so smaller things going real fast were probably our best pattern. Uh, but, of course, we catch them all ways. So that's how you got to do it. All right, guys, Chris Willen here. Um, I do a wide array of stuff with gear and flies, so I would say we caught a lot of fish on flies this year, um, per usual, and then lure-wise, we did really well on tubes, and then late season, I was throwing the hat trick a lot, uh, swim bait, um, Alabama rig-style thing uh, that Chaos is making, and it was just something I don't think a lot of the fish had seen, and so we were doing well on that. Uh, biggest fish of the year was on a tube, though. Um, Pretty versatile bait anywhere you go, anywhere in the country. Uh, a lot of us travel a lot. I definitely travel a lot. And those get bit everywhere we go. Um, I had a little opposite experience of Steve this year. We did not do well at the boat. Um, a lot of our fish were halfway back or, you know, first couple cranks. So, um, you know, take that for what it is. You know, we're, Steve and I fish pretty similar areas. And that's a, uh, something to take note, you know, something something happens for one guy doesn't always happen for the next guy so um yeah that was pretty much it for me awesome now this is colin here chris you teed me up pretty nicely we had the same thing with the follow-ups um you know pewaukee lake being very highly pressured probably two-thirds of you know a lot of my boated fish are coming in the figure eight and i found that trigger and fish changing up those blades to stagger um has definitely caused more fish to eat at the boat I've also been excited about a couple other baits. I'm a big glide bait person, and uh, Rusty Customs made a really good one that caught a lot of fish in my boat. Also, the uh, Mick Glide by the Mick Bait Company um, was a good producer. Um, and uh, finding baits for me that can still catch fish into late November and late December, you know, is always tough. Uh, I find that they 
menu gets pretty small for them what they're actually willing to eat besides meat. Um, so the one other bait that I was able to add to that time of the year, uh, you know, besides a, a rubber, a glide, uh, was the uh, Leviathan bait um, by Lee Lures. I found that the, the wobble rising uh, was the same kind of triggering mechanism as the uh, wobbling while, say, a glide bait was falling. Uh, so it worked both ways for me and my boat. Uh, Austin here. I would say that specific bait-wise is very tough to say, but I can tell you category of bait-wise, it was blades for me. It was the best blade season that I've had since I started musky fishing by like a long shot. Um, what I account that to is partially what Steve brought up. I had the same experience with a lot of fish chasing boatside. And when it comes to boatside convertibility, how many fish actually chase a bait that end up biting, and then how many of those bites actually get hooked and stay hooked for you to catch them, it comes down to straight efficiency. And when it came to uh, my season, I saw it from April all the way through December. It was uh, really just matching their mood, the depth, uh, whatever size of blades, um, and dialing it in there. I will say that for me, adding in the slow roll that I know Brad and Carrie have talked about many a times with, with uh, bucktails, it's not one that I was always willing to do. Um, this year I saw that as being probably the greatest addition to having fish engage with the bait, make it all the way to the boat, and end up biting, whereas opposed to whether that be me as the third bait through and the fish didn't to uh, fish didn't engage on a faster moving high in the column bait, um, it was it was something special. So beyond beyond matching the day and the mood and the size of the blades and how fast it was going, nothing real crazy from from my part. Uh, Jeff Van Remortal, WDH Guide Service. Um, hot baits for us this year. This was one of the best years. Uh, I spent my time mostly northern Wisconsin, a little bit on the bay uh, of Green Bay. But uh, in northern Wisconsin, this was one of the best years I've had for rubber in a while. Last year was very, very heavy for blades. Um, and the rubber bite is always a major component. Um, but this year we had that rubber bite was really good for us uh, for quite a while. Uh, early, late, middle, the whole time. Um, no real big surprise there. Regular bulldogs, mid-medusas are the money makers, couple on tubes, of course. Um, and on the blade side of things, on the bay, they're pretty well known out there for eating blades. Uh, the blades were very hot for us out there. Um, though the largest fish in my season came on an X-Tobe from Lake X-Lures. Um, on, that one was on the bay. Um, my largest fish in northern Wisconsin was on a mag dog. Um, and then uh, the bulk of our fish, though, on Green Bay, Marvin 88s were for sure the killer for us. We had a lot of four, five, six, and even a seven fish day out there, uh, and the Marvin 88s really got it done for us out there. So um, I didn't really throw much else, if I'm being honest, on the blade side of things. We just had a pattern going, and we stuck with it. So for a lot of our days out there, we, we did catch a few fish on on, um, on various other blades, but that was uh, that was the main moneymaker for me. Um, and, of course, uh, in northern Wisconsin early, we had the SRJ, uh, did really well for us in that uh, you know first couple weeks of the season, and then we did smoke quite a few of them on it in September as well. Uh, so that's about the rundown of everything I use. Pretty boring, a lot of the same stuff just about every day, but it was producing for us, and it produced just about every day. So. All right. We're going to see if we have somebody that's sitting here listening to this podcast has a question. Let's check it out. You have a question by yeah, chance? I'll ask you guys one. 
All right, so I'm a little bit of a data guy, a data nerd. I know a lot of people are kind of hesitant to share numbers, whether that's total numbers for the season, biggest on the season, things like that. I'm curious from a pro perspective, why are people so hesitant maybe around that? Like I've seen numbers from Jeff before. I know like Forrest up in Lake of the Woods, for instance, will give it. Maybe they don't want to give spots, things like that. But I'd be curious maybe why is that a thing in the musky world or – and maybe a follow-up then would be, what stats do you guys keep? Do, are you looking at uh, a journal every day of, I caught this fish at this time in this moon period with this water temp at blah, blah, blah. How do you guys uh, numerically kind of go back and look at your season? Well, I'll start. Uh, basically, I don't really keep track of my numbers. I guess if I wanted to, I could probably go back and count them. It doesn't really matter to me. Um, usually the fish that stands out the most for me every year is the largest one in the fish or boat for the year so you know that side of it to me is what really gets me going i guess um i don't look at it that way i don't i'm always about the customer when i'm guiding and when we're doing the tv work i get to review it anyway so it kind of works that way for me but uh one thing that i would say if we're going to talk about how you keep track of that one thing that we we talk about in the tv show this year is calendar days, and it's really interesting. A calendar day might be so effective. If you watch the last two two years of episodes, Jeff Schulte caught two 54 and a halves back-to-back years on the same body of water on the same exact day. This year, we didn't make that happen. We were going for the third year in a row. It didn't happen. I mean, kind of a, a big thing to try to accomplish. But at the end of the day, um, Chase caught his largest fish to date, um, I'm not going to ruin it. It's coming out here in a couple more weeks, um, but it was his personal best in the boat. And current, you know, before this fish, it was 54 and a half. So that gives you a little idea. But um, it was on a calendar day. He caught his very first 50 incher six years ago on this day. Six years later, he gets his new personal best. So calendar day has become kind of important, I think, and I think it's overlooked over the years. One way to identify those days is when you get a picture of a fish in your boat, take a picture of your graph. You've got your time on there. You've got your date. You have the location on the GPS, so on and so forth, your water temp. That will definitely help key you back in on some of those days. I don't keep a journal. I did. I tried to years ago. I'm not disciplined enough to do it. When I get home, I'm tired. I want to eat and go to bed. So that's my, my excuse. I am not a guide, but I'll weigh in on this question because as a, you know, I'm more of a weekend warrior type of guy, and I don't actually pay much attention to total fish in the boat as much as I kind of pay attention to approximately how many hours a year or how many hours it's taking me to catch a muskie. And I know for the beginning part of this season, my hours per muskie were probably some of the lowest that I've ever seen. I would go out for four or five hours, and I would either catch one, lose one. We'd have many encounters in the early part of the season. But for me, it was probably the toughest October, November that I had ever seen, and I can't put a finger on it. I'm maybe just not that good of a musky angler, I don't know, but uh, we, I struggled badly. So my October, November numbers were probably the worst that I've ever seen. So we had a, you know, kind of a high and low type of a thing. I used to keep really, really good track, like, so we'll use my best season I ever had. We had 62 muskies in the net in in my boat i'm not a guide i was getting out maybe two days a week and we would literally 
it seemed like every call that we made, every lake we made was the right call. If we decided to go down this weed bed or that weed bed, it was the right call. If we were trolling and we were going to troll over this hump or that hump, we made the right call and it all lined up and we ended up with 62. But I kept really good records. I knew how many fish we had every single season. And I guess as I got older, I just cared less and less about how many muskies I was catching. It was more about time on the water. There's times that I do wish that I kept better records, mostly from like, we'll use some of the lakes that I had gone back to recently. I used to have really good records on it. And I don't know where those records are now. I wish I had the records so I could go back a little bit and get some, like, you know, for example, we'll use line links when I was trolling. Like I, I think I'm, I think I'm in the ballpark now, but I'm not exactly where I, where I, I'm not as dialed in as I ever was. But I also probably spend less time in the water now than I ever did. But so for me, a weekend warrior, I was, I'm more looking at about how many hours it's taken me to put muskies in the net versus total numbers of muskies. Because I mean, it's mostly that's that's one of the biggest variable, right? I mean, Austin's on the water all the time. Unless he unless he's worse than me, which is highly unlikely, he's probably going to put more muskies in the net than me. So um, we'll pass it on to Steve. Uh, interesting perspective and a, a really good question. Uh, I think when you are a young guy beginning and you're really aggressive and you're excited, you're counting every fish, you're writing everything down, you're really craving for knowledge, and as you progress, um, a lot of that knowledge becomes secondhand, and it's just in your brain all the time. Um, I'm fortunate in that I have kind of a photographic memory. I can remember things that happened 20 years ago just like it happened today, but I won't remember your name if I went fishing with me. Um, I'll remember the fish you caught and where you caught it and on what, but I probably won't remember your name. So uh, your brain works in a funny way that way. Um, for the first, oh, probably 15 years, I kept a pretty extensive record. I think I logged the first thousand muskies that we caught um, very, very accurately where we caught them, what we caught them on, date, time, who caught it, what lake, how deep. Um, and it was all good knowledge. But I think there's a point where it all becomes too much that you can't really process through it properly. Uh, my best years in my boat, uh, 207 fish. Um, in Hayward, I average between 100 and 200 fish a year. Um, 150 fish is a good average year. If I'm under 100, I feel like we had a slow year. If we hit 200, we had a great year. Um, so those are kind of my numbers that I base it on. But um, I'm like Jeff. I'm not necessarily counting them. I'm more worried about how long it's taking my clients to get a fish. Um, if we're going two, three, or four hours without a fish, I'm getting nervous. So a lot of times that, that's how I'm, again, measuring it. Um, but really, as far as you know, maintaining a log, it's fun when it's early in your career. As you get a little more experience, a little more time on the water, a lot of that stuff goes to the wayside. And a lot of it becomes just innate knowledge that you hopefully can remember. All right, Will in here. I, uh, to try to avoid repeating what a lot of these guys are saying, which is the same stuff, um, I'll keep this short. I have no idea how many muskies I caught this year. I couldn't tell you how many muskies I caught in the last five, six years probably. Uh, same thing that Steve was saying, when we first start get going, you keep a lot of notes, you keep track of it, and then it sort of just falls to the side and you keep track of other things. Um, I mentioned before, I do a lot of river stuff. So a lot of the data that I keep track of is CFS, which is cubic feet per second. So I wanna know how much water I got in the river when I'm catching these fish. Um, calendar date is big for us too in the river. Um, there's definitely days that are days that I am not going to miss. I'm going to be on the water those days, and uh, that's a big deal. Um, but, you know, 
my situation is just a little bit different than these guys because in the lakes the water doesn't change a whole ton uh, other than temperature you know you'll get a little bit of a level change but our level could change week to week so that is something that we keep track of um, pretty diligently uh, with the river stuff um, keep track of the big fish for sure you know you like to see if you get fish over 50 or you know fish over 48 um, whatever uh, this year personally we only got one fish over 50 the whole year um, in northern Wisconsin that can be somewhat typical you know you only get a couple maybe that size and more of our fish are big the big fish that we get are more in that 47 to 49 inch range um, so keep track of those a little bit um, I'm uh, I'm one of those guys, I don't like to measure a ton of fish, so I don't measure them unless they're pretty big. Um, and, you know, I feel like after 14 years, we're pretty good at eyeballing them, so uh, I don't put a ton of them on the board. Um, so measurement-wise, I have also have no idea. Um, I keep it pretty lax in my boat. <laughs> These guys are all laughing at me right now, but, uh, but yeah, it's just, you know, it's just the way it is. And then another thing that I keep track of, too, especially because I'm doing a lot of fly fishing, um, the fact of the matter is, is that we just don't catch all of them that eat the fly. So I keep pretty good notes. You know, if you go went through my calendar, I'm still in 1985, so I use a written calendar for my all my bookings. And and, and, and every day I'll write like, you know, one for five, two for three, four for whatever, you know, however that is. And I'll make a little note, you know, if I'm fly fishing or if I'm throwing lures or if something epic happened or, you know, something like that, I'll maybe write a little note so I have it. But... Uh, truthfully, I couldn't tell you the last time I went back and looked at any of that stuff. So I'm going to pass it on to Colin. Uh, so like these other uh, guides, I definitely kept a log when I was younger. It helped me learn really fast. And back then we didn't have cell phones that could take photos of stuff. So you had to record it. Uh, things have definitely changed and they keep track of stuff for you. Uh, where I do keep track of data and write stuff down is actually uh, on maps. If I'm going to a new body of water, I will bring a map with me. I will make detailed notes on where I saw fish, what I saw them on, maybe when I saw them. Uh, and that way, if I'm there for a few days or if I'm there for a week or if I'm coming back the next week, you start to build a pattern uh, a lot faster by recording that. You're not always going to remember everything, especially on a new body of water. I'm pretty spoiled. I've fish the same body of water for 20 years so there's not too much too much to learn at that point um, but new bodies of water I, I definitely think it's it's very helpful and there's no doubt that the calendar repeats year after year and, and you seem to have great days and catch same big fish uh, year after year on that same calendar day uh, Austin speaking I, I think to go back to the original question I think why we don't we don't do numbers is we just all have gigantic egos and, and we just don't want to hurt anybody else's feelings, but we want us all to feel the same. So we're all like just super good. I, I don't think Jeff's any worse than I am. I think he's super good. I think we're all super good. So that's, I think that's like just a fair answer for the, for the whole, whole field. But no, I think I'm, I'm somewhat still in the early young guide stage where I, I do at some point record all of the information I can um, on every fish that we boated. Uh, just obviously using like date and time and, and any pictures throughout the days. But I will say over the last two years, the more the focus or the things that I would say that I take away from the number information side of things is uh, adding in like the days that either 
just a wave of bigger fish do something like like brad had mentioned the things that stick out are the really big fish right and that's really what we're all intentionally trying to chase there's no musky i really will say that i feel better or worse about catching i'll take any of them that want to bite especially when there's clients in the boat but the days that it seems like they stand out that groups of big fish or a big fish responded to a certain bait this way or in this location those are the days that i think I make more of a note on and uh, and really keep track of for you know the next few years. It always always seems to come back around if you uh, if you at least have your attention building on it. Uh, JVR, um, yeah. So for the record keeping thing, I I mean answering the questions of why why we don't share. I mean I, I do. I am pretty diligent about recording my stuff. I keep my stuff in a paper uh, planner just like Chris. Dude, I've been doing that. Because how many times you're around water all the time sooner or later, you might lose your phone, right? But I do. And, and so for me, I do I do hop around and do other things throughout the year. Um, you know, in the spring when I'm doing steelhead stuff, I record the CFS and that stuff because the flow of the number of rivers I hit. If you're a musky guy that fishes rivers, like Chris said, that's a super important thing to do. Water temperature and, you know, your river flow. On the lakes up north and other places as I travel, the biggest thing I try to keep track of is is when I get those bigger windows, not just the bigger fish, but when you have those good days. Um, I do, like I said, very similar to what Chris did. Yeah, we went one for five today, maybe the initials of the lake. Um, in northern Wisconsin, where we bounce around on lakes so often, I like to try to keep track of all those lakes so that I can look back over a course of time and see when, you know, this type of lake was going or this name of lake. And not necessarily just because of that lake specifically you know lake a but like what type of lake is that if it's a green bloom lake if it's a brown lake if it's a flowage type system and i record all that stuff for the use of in my guiding and as well as in now the musky academy stuff i put a weekly report in there so i have these really super detailed logs that i didn't really plan on having but now that i do have I'm putting them out every friday um and i have this i can go back and i can look at that stuff and it's really helpful um i even went back and looked at it, some of them this year as i was comparing them uh, and writing those reports and seeing just just for my own curiosity and it does it is really nice but i was in a way i wouldn't say forced to do it but I, I i did quit recording them in any kind of detail for many many years because as everybody else said here the discipline when you get home you're tired man like you're not going to get to a point where you're going to stop recording your stuff or start you know not go fishing because you didn't get your record written down right it's just too much to do so the record keeping definitely has its place especially when you're getting early and getting established and especially if you're trying to learn many a great number of systems over the course of time because you will forget um, i really did like brad's tip on taking the picture of that you know you got your pictures in your phone you're scrolling back you see your fish and right in there you can date stamp all that location water temperature everything the spot it gets you right in that mind frame so i think it's an important thing to do but it's not the be all end all i do like to keep track of numbers just so i do know how my year stacks up from year to year um, and you know what your maybe your average size of fish is but outside of that that's mostly just superficial for myself not necessarily for else for other people awesome let's uh see if we can find another question out here with the crowd all right so i guess my question has a couple parts to it let's say that you're on the water and you hook into a big fish and it comes off one do you think you've burnt that fish and you're not going to go back at it two if you are going to go back are you just waiting for a moon phase or weather change? And three, are you gonna throw the same bait or are you gonna try something completely different? All right, so going back on muskies, the ultimate golden question. All right, uh, JVR here. Um, so, um, you know, a lot of that, the answer is it depends, right? So one of the things, if you, if you do move a fish and it's hot, um, the first thing I'll assess is, is this a fish that I really 
want to catch, right? Like it, it doesn't mean that I would, I'm a snob or I don't want to catch one, but like if this is an approaching window and I see it's a 35, 38, something like that, and I know that a window's opening up, I may or may not go back. If I'm by myself and fishing for myself, I probably won't go back. Maybe I'll make a cast back on that fish, but I'm, I'm probably just gonna use that as an indicator that stuff's going on in the system. And it might be a bigger fish on a better spot that I want to try to go to. Maybe there's a pot of fish on that spot. You know, the best place to find a muskie is the last place you found a muskie. So when you go back, doesn't necessarily mean that the fish that you're going back on is the fish that you'll catch. Um, there could be multiples there. And in fact, a lot of times the smaller fish are more pliable. They'll come out and maybe there is a big one laying in there. Uh, this is especially true on something like large water, Great Lakes, some of the bigger stuff in Minnesota, uh, some of the shield lakes. We've got larger numbers of fish versus say something like northern Wisconsin where it's a 300 acre lake there's not probably 15 fish sitting on a spot every once in a while but not usually so those are things to consider when you're thinking about going back on a fish per se are you going back on an area that has a lot of fish or are you going back on one specific fish that's holding on a piece of structure uh, as far as triggering that fish man i it's a really hard question sometimes you get these fish and, and the better you get with electronics and the more that you spend time in the water and the more days you get where you get those days where you see 10 15 20 fish and they just don't want it then they flip the switch for a little bit that window opens you know it, sometimes it's just not the right time and other times you've dislodged that fish i found many times going back on these fish now especially because you go make a pass through you saw five six fish on side image you go back through that spot at moon or when you think it's gonna be a good spot maybe there's one fish or no fish there or maybe you get one lazy follow something depends on heavy cover how heavy a cover if you mess with those fish a lot of times they don't come back especially the big ones i've seen those fish come and it's you've all seen that muskie that comes into the boat and just comes in, basically flips you off and goes right under the boat and swims right under the abyss off that main lake point, never to be seen again. Going back on that fish in an hour at moon, it's hard not to, and I'll often do it, but it's you have to realize that a lot of times when that doesn't work, the fish might just not be there. They might have moved, and I've had that a number of times where, you know, moved like a 45 on a, on a main lake point, whatever, and ended up catching it 300 yards down the break. The same fish, for sure, whether it had an identifying scar or just... Not that many fish that size in the system. So again, the point being is that those fish can move. Um, as far as what baits to throw, a lot of times I'll go back at a better time and throw the same bait. Uh, other times breaking it down and throwing back something like a glider, um, a, a rip pause bait, a dying dog, an SRJ, something that pauses, hangs, um, that gives that fish a little bit more of a time, a chance to eat it if it came in on blades. It really depends what it comes in on. I could probably talk about this for like 20 minutes, but in the long and the short of it is, whatever it came in on will give you a hint as to what to choose to throw back on it. But know that if it doesn't work, many times it's just that the fish isn't there anymore, especially if it's a big fish in a small system. So, Hold up, Jeff, one second. So what about if you hooked it? He, part oh, of his oh, question was you definitely, had, you definitely talked about having the fish hooked. What, hap what happens if you hooked it and lost it? Sorry, there's a little lot here. I missed that part. Okay, so um, if you've hooked that fish, my success rate on that is almost zero, I would say. Um, coming back at another time, this depends on the size of the system. Did you hook a fish on Green Bay? Did you hook a fish on Random Lake, right? Okay, like, okay this, that fish, is, it's a finite thing, right? In a small box, it can't go very many places. If it's a big fish, it can go off to never be seen again. So you've got that fish's number, you know where it lives. It may or may not abandon that spot after that, but look at a secondary or tertiary spot close by, or even the open water, two, three, four cast lengths out from it. Most of the time, that's where they seem to go. They'll come off that spot. You might not get them that day. You might have to come back another time. Sometimes they'll bite the same bait, sometimes something different. But when you do hook a fish, especially if you get a really good piece of them, it's all but over, in my opinion, for the most part. But don't give up, especially if it's a system that's manageable size and that you can go back on that fish another day. Austin, um, I would say, yeah, basically, I think you're SOL for the day, but I will say 
take note of what that fish bit and where it bit it from because there's obviously the how these fish move where they use spots where they feed on those spots from for the next say week you may that fish may be using that spot to feed you may be able to time it right next big weather change whatever it may be the windows align go back i'd give it the same bait it it ate it right and i'll never forget this story bob benson told me on vermilion he was fishing one giant shoreline uh fish ate a supermodel popped off and it was a giant fish and he was you know just sad as can be uh his clients like why don't we go throw at it again and bob's like it's that's not gonna work like the i just i just had the opportunity and they fished another spot and he's like why don't like it was big like that's the one we're looking for right and they went back and it ate the same bait giant fish right on the same spot so i mean it happens they're they're pea brain sized fish yeah we give them a lot of credit and yeah they probably deserve it sometimes but i just put my bait back in the water and cross my fingers and see what happens uh colin here yeah going back on a fish that you have already hooked is i mean if you know you got hooks in them it's one thing if they swing and they miss or they bump a bait or something like that and they reposition themselves i mean i've got tons of baits or fish that as soon as they leave they turn around and look at you yeah, you know, after they're uninterested, and there's no doubt that just like humans, some fish are smart and fun, some fish are stupid. Uh, and once you fool a certain fish on a bait, chances are you can get them to eat that same bait. Now, on the opposite end, if you're throwing back on something or coming back on someone or a fish that didn't eat or commit too hard, it is nicer to throw something, you know, different or slower that you can hang, like Jeff mentioned. Um, sometimes the second chance isn't going to be as aggressive as the first one. But going back on moon is huge. If you're going to go back on fish, you know, pick your right time. I'm not going to turn around for a small fish. I'm not going to camp on fish. I think camping on fish is silly. I also... I'm trying to cover water and find aggressive fish, but that's outside of a peak of a moon window. If I know it's a peak of a moon window, I'm going to a fish where I know where it lives, I have its address, and there are fish that are going to cycle spots, and there are fish that don't move. I've been able to catch the same fish on the same lure once a week for three weeks in a row, and it hasn't moved. Um, some fish will just keep going through a spot and i guess the one thing i have noticed though is you'll get the fish that will stay after you catch them and then you'll get a fish that as soon as they get any kind of contact they're out of there and you'll never see them in that spot again um, but time on time on the water is everything when it goes to that the more addresses you know the more fish you know the more pets and first name basis of, of fish they got uh, the more the more you can go to them on the the right times or go back on them on the right times Will in here. Um, you know, a lot of the stuff that was said is super good. I don't want to repeat it. Um, one thing that I always tell my guys, though, is a good musky spot is a good musky spot is a good musky spot. So even if it's not the same fish, it's likely that even a, especially a fish of that caliber that other fish are going to be using it. So learn something from it rather than, you know, being like, okay, I didn't get that one. Maybe you'll go get some other ones from there. Um, and I'll tell you a really quick short story here about the biggest muskie I've ever guided to. Um, we lost it right at the boat. We were fly fishing. He hooked it. It got off. Um, and I had one sucker in the boat. And I was just like, well, this is where I'm going to try to use that sucker because it was the biggest fish I'd ever seen in northern Wisconsin. So we sat there. We did a couple passes. And on the third pass, it ate it. 
and we had it hooked. We were fighting it on the fly, minutes, you know, whatever, half hour beforehand, and we ended up landing it on live bait. So um, something that nobody else mentioned, but something that um, is worth taking note of. Maybe if you're not opposed to using live bait, um, you can go back and, and maybe get it that way. Um, in my case, I was very happy that we did that. To, that was years ago, and to date it's still the biggest uh, client fish I've ever had in my boat. So very happy that we maybe didn't get it the way we wanted to get it, which was on a fly rod, but we did end up catching it. So um, noteworthy for sure. Yep, Steve here. Um, all great answers and all right. And, you know, it really depends on each person's deal. Um, to me, it's how did you hook it? Was it just a little bit or did you eat it and you fought it for a while? Um, if we just tick them, I'm absolutely coming back after it. I'm generally going to go right away. Um, if I don't get it right away, then I'm pulling off of there. And then I'm watching my day, and I'm, I'm measuring the muskies' activity. If I all of a sudden get into a window where I'm starting to see fish and I'm getting bites, even though we may not be in a moon major or a moon or a sunset or whatever it may be, um, if I see an increase in activity in the general population, I'm going to go back after that fish. Um, I have caught fish that we've hooked and fought almost all the way to the boat that got off and then ate the lure again, and we got them, a couple of them, um, some big ones. So... Um, my biggest thing is don't give up immediately. Um, one thing that drives me nuts is when, it, when a client hooks a fish and it gets off and then they stand there and look at me with the rod in their hand and they're not doing anything. Well, you ain't never going to catch that fish that way. Keep your bait in the water, keep it moving, because I have seen the craziest things happen. They are muskies. Um, if it's a fish that we lose, um, I don't often catch them that day. But I get to go fishing every day, so that's not something everybody gets to do. If I'm stuck on the lake just for that one day, oh, I'm going to be there numerous times, four, five, six times in that day, through all the prime times, through any, any, anything that would give me the opportunity that I would think I would get that fish to bite. If I'm going to be guiding there tomorrow, and I know what time the day she bit today, I know what time she's probably going to bite tomorrow, so I will save her um, to some extent, um, and I have gone back and caught many fish that we've encountered that we've hooked and lost uh, may not be the next day may not be even that week uh, but a lot of times it is so I will certainly um, take that into consideration do I get to fish here for a lot longer or am I going to be on to the next lake tomorrow or is my vacation up and I'm going home tomorrow so uh, those are things to consider too and like I said uh, even though you hooked them and they got off they don't think about it. All they think is their, their meal got away. They don't, they don't know what happened. Exactly. They eat spiny prey all the time. It is my personal belief that they do not have the ability to feel pain in their mouth. Because I have seen them get hooked, get fought, get off, eat the lure again. Now, if you hook them in the side or in the cheek, um, I do f believe they can feel that, feel pain there. Um, if they could feel pain in their mouth, they wouldn't be able to eat. They eat bullheads, they eat bluegills, they eat perch. Um, so I honestly don't believe that there's a pain thing that turns them off. Um, I do believe it's something unnatural in their environment. So that may turn them off. Um, but again, these fish do not think. They react by instinct. So they're not down there contemplating what happened. They just realize that their meal got away and they're still hungry. Um, so that's something to think about too. Can't give them too much credit. Um, but certainly want to give them as many chances as you can if you're going to be short-termed. Um, if you have a lot of time to come back uh, on vacation for a week, then I'm going to plan it out a little bit more. I might space uh, my returns a little bit more. The lure that I'm going to use is certainly going to be with multiple people in the boat. I'm going to have the lure that the fish bit for sure 
But number two and number three in the boat are going to be a stop and start lure. Um, something that pauses, something that hangs. Uh, could be a glider, could be a suet, could be rubber. Uh, all three work very well. Could be a tube. All four work very well. Um, so I'll, I'll factor that in, but I will certainly always have that the original lure going as long as I have multiple people in the boat. It's an interesting question. We had a customer just earlier today talk about losing a fish on a grenade, recasting it right away, and bang, they got the fish. So, you know, it's a loaded question. I think it's a time and a place, always, right? But I like that, Steve, where you're talking about no pain in the mouth. It makes perfect sense. I mean, you think about it, like you said, they're eating spiny back fish. I mean, that's their deal. If it hurt, they wouldn't eat anything, ever. So, let's see if we can get another question here. My ball. Gosh dang it. Think of something. All right, age-old question, color. Does it uh, play into your pattern? Uh, we're just talking about losing a fish. You, you said the same bait, throwing back at it, we change colors. And then uh, for, like, uh, I don't know, Chippewa flowage, everyone throws uh, the flowage green, right? Is that an area that, uh, that flowage green is uh, most effective in, or the chip uh, specifically, or uh, if you guys can elaborate on that for us. So I don't know, Jeff, I, I don't know if we have Steve start this one, because he fishes the chip every once in a while, so maybe we start with JVR, huh? <laughs> Alright, so the color uh, question is color and how does it play in, and if flowage green works other places than the chip will flowage, I love it. Um, yeah, that, that black and green and that, that flowage green works a lot of places with that color color water. Over there it is notorious. Uh, if I'm not mistaken, Steve can confirm, but black, black, black and green, a lot of good colors there. Good colors anywhere. Um, on my daily approach for color, I'll try to match it with the water. Anything that's got a green bloom, I'm going probably more along the chartreuse line. Sometimes orange works well there too. Um, if it's a heavy bloom green, try to stick with the green colors. If it's a heavy tint to uh, a coffee or a tannic, more towards the orange color spectrum. As a good rule of thumb, I think you can't go wrong with that. Um, but I, I mostly stick with natural colors, with the exception of maybe dark water. I'll throw in some like baby duck and stuff. I guess it's still kind of a natural color, but black and copper, black and silver, black and gold pretty much encompass almost everything I throw for blades. Um, and in most situations, with the occasional heavy painted bright blades on darker days or uh, in that super dark water. Um, and as far as rubber goes to it's it's very much a, a match the hatch for me every now and then and that's like northern Wisconsin for the most part So uh, you go to Minnesota you go to places sometimes they really like some gaudy stuff But for me the most effective stuff has been the natural white black brown uh, real boring, but real effective um, with occasionally throwing in some of that uh, Flashier stuff again in a heavy bloomed water or something that has some tannins so age-old question age-old answer But in my boat it really does seem to work I think the answers you get are that way for a reason because producers are producers all right, Steve here again. Uh, Chippewa flowage green. I honestly hate the color question. I hate color. Um, it is really kind of an impossible question to answer, but it has very definitive answers. So the flowage green, I guide in Hayward. Uh, fished at Chippewa flowage a lot. For many, many years, I refused to throw flowage green. There's got to be something else that'll work out here, right? Everybody is throwing green. I need to mix it up. I need to figure out what the fish want other than that green. I spent a lot of years not catching much. Add in the flowage green, and all of a sudden I'm catching fish. <laughs> like Matt, along with everybody else. Uh, so I do believe there are certain lakes that have certain patterns that do hold true. Uh, flowage green on the Chippewa is one. 
I have another lake where I throw black and red with nickel blades. That's my color, and it works. Um, other lakes, it doesn't seem to matter. Um, at times, it doesn't seem to matter. But I do pay attention to certain colors that are historically or consistently productive on a particular body of water. Does green work only on the Chippewa Flowage? Absolutely not. It works all around. Um, I think it works great on those dark colored waters. So we're matching the color of the water more so than the actual lake. Um, so I think that's the biggest factor there. Um, <clears throat> but it's a tough, it's a tough thing, man. And uh, honestly, a thing that drives me crazy because people want to try different colors, try different colors, try different colors. Brother, I know what color they like here. So that's why I have you throwing it for eight hours today. Um, so, and then when they don't get one, you're like, oh, dang, I wish I would have tried a different color. So you have those mental things that go on, but uh, pay attention to what works. Um, don't get caught in a rut, but certainly don't avoid things, especially when you know that it works there. Um, that's my advice on that. Uh, difficult question, no doubt. All right, Will in here. Um, you know, my answer is going to be they're going to bite what you're throwing. So if you throw flowage green all the time on the flowage, you're going to catch them on flowage green. If you're throwing black nickel, you're going to catch them on that. Um, what I would say is when you're fishing and you're fishing a color that you're confident in, then you're going to be fishing that bait better and you're going to be executing your figure eights better you're going to be making better decisions on how you're going to move the bait all that stuff because you're confident the whole time so if your confidence color is natural perch and you've caught a ton of fish on natural perch and you go out to a body of water that maybe you're not sure of or whatever put on your confidence color fish it the way that you know how to fish it make sure you're hanging your eights make sure you're doing your stuff and all that stuff is going to play a lot more than just the uh, the color of your bait. Uh, truthfully, I think a lot of us, um, if we were handcuffed to only throw a black bait the entire year, our numbers would probably be pretty similar. Um, you know, obviously there's there's things and, and you know there's there's never a, a certain defined rule to anything in musky fishing, or at least that's the only thing I've figured out over the last 14 years is that nothing's definitive. But um, yeah, I just. Whatever you're confident in, you're going to be fishing that better. So that's that's my color qu uh, answer. Uh, Colin here, hardcore hooking. Uh, this color is always a great question, and it's it's interesting. I'm a believer, but you you have a lot of lure makers in the boat, and they'll throw wooden baits and catch fish right in front of you and tell you that color doesn't matter. I think on you know maybe higher pressured waters, it could be more important, but there are definitely days. It does not matter. They'll eat a Mountain Dew can if you skip it across the surface the right way. Um, we definitely have uh, matching the hatches important. You know, if you don't have whitefish or cisco in your lake, you might not throw white or that size uh, bait. You know, if you've got a lot of perch or bluegill and that's the main forage like we do around us, you know, that typically can be a lot of the colors that you're throwing. Um, so no, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say it's the most important thing. I think that if you come across a fish that's willing to hit, maybe less than 20% of them aren't going to hit any color that you throw. Um, very few of them, they're going to say, oh, it's the right size, it's the right speed, it's the right vibration, it's the right water column, it's everything, but I don't like the color. Um, the one or a few times that I have seen, you know, color maybe make a difference and a change has worked is I've had a lot of fish say come in to the eight that will go back and forth and back and forth and they'll go right nose to it, practically sniffing it, um, and you just can't understand why that fish wouldn't eat. You think you did everything right. 
and you do the slightest alteration, let's say from black to say, yeah, black with some blue and purple and green, a little mix up, but still a dark color. And then those fish all of a sudden start eating. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a tricky question, um, but confidence goes into it. I think that uh, somebody who's not changing baits a lot compared to somebody who is changing baits is gonna have a, their bait in the water a lot more, make a lot more casts and cover a lot more water. And that definitely can be the name of the game when you're musky fishing. So um, better off having a water or having a black lure in the water than worrying about switching colors of the same lure. All right, well, that brings us to about the end of uh, day one here at the Chicago Muskie Expo. I want to thank all of our guides for taking time out of your day to talk muskie fishing with us. Once again, we will do this again in the Milwaukee show. I do want to talk, give you my two cents on color, and Chris stole it. I was going to say confidence is key when it comes to muskie fishing. We've talked about it a million times on the podcast. If you are confident in what you're throwing, you will likely fish it harder, faster, longer, better. And you will catch more muskies that way. I find it to be odd to me. We get occasional people that will send me emails and they'll say, you know, what's the hot color this year? And like, I don't know, where are you fishing? What color water are you fishing? Are you night fishing? You know, there's a lot of different, you know, things that go into that. And what I think is the best color may not be what you think is the best color. So I think that you should fish what you think is the best color and fish it longer, harder, faster, better. And you'll likely catch more muskies. So once again, Brad, Thanks for taking time out, and uh, you got any final thoughts? Not really, no. I mean, confidence is key, and I think all of that has already been talked about. So, honestly, I just want to thank everybody for coming out to the Chicago show. I mean, when you're hearing this, it's over, and uh, it's been fun. Thanks, everybody, that helped us and participated in this. Yeah, once again, this will be over, but we'll be on to thinking about the Milwaukee Muskie Expo. I want to say it's 15th, 16th, 17th or something, Brad. I believe that sounds right. It might you might be off a day, but uh, it's that second weekend, I believe, in February, and uh, we're looking forward to that one already. Sounds good. So, as always, want to thank all of our listeners for putting up with us for another episode. Hopefully, you can tolerate the background noise as we're at a show. But we always put these episodes out now at the shows or after the shows because they're far more educational and you get more out of them than me and Brad talking about how great or lousy said show was you know, for attendance or what kind of gossip we had seen that, uh, that weekend. But anyways, thank you for listening and we'll be here with a, uh, a lot, a in-studio episode again next week. <laughs>